Today's scripture reading comes from 1 John 3, 16 through 17. It says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. Great to be with you. My name's Brad. If you're a guest who's here with us, we're so thankful that you've come to worship with us today. Today's going to be just a little bit different than a normal Sunday would be at Mercy Hill. And uh, whenever you hear that, if you're a guest, you think, oh no. Um, Different in in, and hopefully even better way. We love to teach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And our elders are going to begin a new sermon series next week on the Beatitudes as we look at some of Jesus' words to his church and to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Today, we're going to, for one Sunday and one week, focus in on the topic of the gospel and the poor. The gospel and the poor. I want to give you an introduction from 1 John chapter 3, these two verses that Kristen has read for us this morning in order to set the scene in terms of a biblical perspective, how the church should respond in light of the gospel and what the Bible says our specific call is to the poor. We're going to hear some updates from some of our mission partners through video and through live interview. And you'll hear from organizations like Streets Ministries and World Relief Memphis, Safe Families, and our own ministry that we've created, Mercy House Ministries. And I hope that you'll be encouraged. And not only that you'll be encouraged, but that you'll also see clear opportunities for how you can be involved in the city engaging those who are far from God and those who are also under-resourced. So we'll look first at the why from the scriptures and then we'll look at the what, what we are doing and how you can join us. The big idea for today is this. If you love Jesus, you will love and serve the poor. If you love Jesus, you'll love and serve the poor. You won't be able to help it. We've created a tension in the American church over the last half century that doesn't exist when we look at the biblical narrative. It doesn't exist in the scriptures. There is the seemingly conservative mindset that says... We are good followers of Jesus if we're good evangelists only. And so we keep the future in mind. The future is what's most important. Be good evangelists. Get people saved. And then there is a seemingly liberal mindset which says, care for social justice issues, which points more to a now Not the future, but now. And then there is the gospel mindset in which Jesus came preaching in his very first sermon. You remember his words? 
The big idea for his first sermon in the Gospels was the kingdom of God is at hand. And if you know anything about the kingdom of God, God's kingdom is his rule and his reign on earth. We pray things like, may it be on earth as it is in heaven. And he left us as his followers here in order through the work of the Spirit to carry that out. And so when Jesus would say things like, the kingdom of God is at hand, as you study the kingdom of God throughout the scriptures, you'll see that there is always, to have a clear perspective and understanding of the kingdom of God, you need to know that it's always now and not yet. The kingdom of God is at hand and the kingdom of God is not yet fully completed. Because Jesus said he's going to return and there will be a day when just as he created this earth, he will make all things new. Now, I want to focus in on 1 John chapter 3 in these two short verses. I actually want to read verse 18 as well. Look back at this passage. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's like a litmus test for believers. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Jesus' life was not some kind of haphazard, last-minute martyrdom. It was instead an atonement. It was planned from the creation of the world. It was a well-designed sacrifice on behalf of you and me. And it was planned since the creation of the world. The greatest act of love in all of human history, in creating humanity, God was choosing to give us his most prized possession, his son. Think about that. The result of God's love being poured into our hearts when we were poor. Don't get past this too quickly. When we were poor, when we were sinful, when we were far away, it means we can't overlook those who are in need who are around us. I've got a quote I want to share with you from Tim Keller's book, Center Church. A great majority of the world's poor live in cities, and there is an important connection between reaching the urban elites and serving the poor of your city. First, an urban church's work among the poor will be a significant mark of its validity. It's one of the good deeds that Scripture says will lead pagans to glorify God. So what good deeds are you talking about? Well, look with me at Matthew 5, verse 16. Gospel of Matthew, he lists one of those good deeds. Matthew 5, 16, I think I have it for you on the screen. It says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Who's your light supposed to shine before? Those who... 
Believers and already know Jesus, no, light shines best in the darkness. Our light is supposed to shine before those who are outside of the family of faith in order that they would see our good deeds and they would glorify Jesus, meaning they would see a love within us that's so overwhelming that it draws them not to us, but to Jesus. Look at 1 Peter 2.12 and listen to his words. 1 Peter 2 Verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, those who are outside the church, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, they're seeing something that is so remarkably different within the children of God that it causes them, even though there is a despise, even though they despise us, there's something that draws them to Jesus because of the love that they see in us. Keller finishes his quote and he says, Similarly, once cultural elites are one to Christ, discipling them includes reorienting them to spend their wealth and power on the needs of the poor and the city instead of on themselves. In other words, an urban church does not choose between ministry to the poor and ministry to the professional class. We need the economic and cultural resources of the elites to help the poor and our commitment to the poor is a testimony to the cultural elites supporting the validity of our message. He's saying that the gospel is for everyone. When you look at the biblical vocabulary that goes with what it means for us to serve the poor, the Bible sometimes talks about mercy and describes caring for the poor as mercy. Just like the name of our church, Mercy Hill Church. I don't think that we knew exactly what we were doing when we said, hey, we're going to come up with a name for our church. And I don't think that we knew all that God had planned in terms of mercy ministry when we first chose that name. But the Bible describes caring for the poor oftentimes as mercy. Think about the story of the Good Samaritan where he showed mercy through medical care and through financial gifts and through personal involvement of his time. The question was, who was the neighbor? And it was the one who showed what? Mercy. So mercy is a way to look at all of the ministry deeds that the church is called to, our, our economic work, our medical work, our financial work. However, there are many places in the Bible where we see that that, some, uh, that same type of ministry that was once called mercy is also called justice. Think about Isaiah 58. I challenge you to read through the book of Isaiah sometime and see all the commands to reach out to those who are far away, those who are under-resourced, those who are left behind, particularly single moms, particularly orphans who are in distress. In Isaiah 58, we see that same type of ministry, and it's called justice. What does it mean to do justice? To share your food with the hungry. And so, understand the tension here. Liberal people don't like to use the word mercy because it seems paternalistic. 
No, we don't, you want to use the word mercy. But then conservative people don't like to use the word justice because it sounds like we're obligated to give to the poor. And, and, we, and so many conservatives think that everybody should work for what they have. So if I want to give to the poor, conservatives will say it's charity, not justice. But the Bible is way more complex than a liberal or seemingly conservative mindset or economic theory. It uses the words mercy and justice, and it goes back and forth between the two. If you don't give your money away to the poor to some degree, the Bible seems to teach that there's a lack of compassion And there's also a lack of justice. You say, where do you get that from? All throughout the scriptures. Look at Joseph. One of the greatest first historical characters that God uses. You say, was he a great pastor? Was he a great preacher? Was he a great evangelist? No, he was a great governor. And God used him in order to see millions not face starvation. You go throughout the Old Testament, read the book of Deuteronomy. You see the way in which the law was set up. And you see how often God required that the margins of the field would be left for the poor, especially the widow, so that she could come and she could uh, glean from those margins and that she would be taken care of and cared for. Read the book of Ruth. Read the book of Isaiah. Read all throughout, not only the Old Testament, but the New the work that deacons were to do in ministering to widows. All throughout the scriptures, we see that God calls his church to care for and do ministry with and to, and to live lives alongside the poor. You say, where do you get that? How can you chapter and verse it? Read any of the red letters in your Bible and look at who Jesus is hanging out with. Is he mainly hanging out with the cultural elites from time to time? But it's usually abnormal. It's not the norm. Who's he most likely with? He's with the poor. Who showed up at his birth? Who showed up in order to say, you're king. We're going to recognize you. Lowly, stinky shepherds, the poor. Jesus' life was lived. His ministry was to the poor. Why would his church's ministry look any different? Let me give you one more example of the tension that we see. It comes up a lot of times when it comes to education and schools, particularly in Memphis. As we continue to annex more areas, the government does, and and we see all these different changes that happen with schools. Democrats would say, uh, it's systematic racism. Not providing good schools, not putting enough money into them. Republicans would say, no, it's a failure of the family. And they're both right, and they're both wrong. Is it the family's fault or is it the system's fault? The one thing we can agree on is it's not the kid's fault. And one of the things that disappoints me the most, being a city dweller, is when I see those who would look out and see changes within the school system and they would think only of their own children. And they would say, oh, our schools are changing. Not good enough for me and mine. We're going to go start our own. Racism doesn't exist today, right? We are called to care for everyone. 
It doesn't mean that your kids have to be in public schools. It doesn't matter if they're in private schools. It doesn't matter if they're homeschooled. We've always said, we'll look at each of our three boys on a yearly basis and we'll make the best decision for each one. And what was best last year might not be best this year. And that's, that's proven to be the case. But when we live our lives in such a way to say, I'm unwilling to sacrifice anything in order for your good, your good. I'm going to keep all of mine. I'm going to find the best church for me and mine. I'm going to find the best school for me and mine. And I'm going to keep all my wealth and I'm going to hoard it on my own. The Bible says, according to this litmus test, you might not be a follower of Jesus because you don't care for the poor. You say, so I have to accomplish good deeds in order to be a follower of Jesus? No. The litmus test shows that you might not understand your own heart, which is that you were poor and that you were far from God and that Jesus gave everything in order to draw us near. So what is his, what is his call on his church today? The Bible is so much more complicated than a Republican, Democrat, conservative, or liberal view. The Bible calls us to care for those who are around us. I want to invite um, you guys to just turn your attention to the screen in just a moment. Within our missional communities, you guys know that we're a church that's structured not just primarily around Sundays. We think this gathering is important, but we are structured around missional communities. Those are small groups of 10 to 20 people who meet in homes throughout the week. Our goal is that we would uh, see the gospel infiltrate all of our lives, not just an hour on Sunday morning or, or one hour on, on maybe a Tuesday or Wednesday night in a small group, but that we would live in light of the gospel all week long and that we would do that with a community of people that we're learning how to be disciples together on mission as Jesus has called us to go out in his great commission to go and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit teaching them to observe everything that he's commanded he says he'll send his spirit with us and so we're trying to learn what it looks like to live on mission. Within each of our missional communities, each of those families of, of people have said, we're going to choose one mission together that we're going to spend about 10% of our missional life pursuing in order that these individuals might come to know Jesus and that we, that we might learn what it looks like to live on mission as Jesus has called us to. Now we say 10% because... We've got our work life and we hobby and we've got all this other life that's probably 90% of our life where we also have opportunities to live in light of the gospel. But there's going to be part of our life where with our missional community, we're going to focus in on a group of people and pray that God might draw them to himself. I asked Andrew, Andrew, um, you guys saw that he wasn't leading this morning. Thanks to Michael and Kristen for leading while Andrew's out. Really appreciate that. Andrew is and Ashley are getting ready to begin a missional community this fall in August. And they're going to focus in on streets ministries. And I asked Andrew to record a short video and share uh, what that ministry is going to be like.
All right, so our missional communities, you probably have picked up on the fact that they, um, they don't come around one individual because maybe everyone likes that person's personality. We found in disciple-making that's probably not the best way to put people together, but we try to come around common mission. And so if you're interested in streets and what Andrew and Ashley will be developing in August, talk with them this summer. They'll be having some conversations with people and some dinners together, and they'd love to share with you more. Um, one of our other missional, we've got four missional communities, we'll have five by this fall. One of our other missional communities, the stewards, um, Chris and Jamie, you're going to hear from their MC, and they're just getting started in a new mission. And Katie Eichner has put together a very creative video for you. Before she comes up, let me, well, let me ask Jared and Katie and Julia to come up and join me on stage for an interview um, while... You guys go to uh, Katie's Kitchen, I believe.
<laughs> that was great. <clears throat> um, World Relief is one of my favorite organizations in Memphis just because um, I had an opportunity when we were in seminary to come along beside uh, a man who was older than me from Nigeria. And uh, he showed up here with his little hat on and his robe on. And he had, I think at one point on his trip here, jumped out of a burning bus and injured his leg. I mean, it was just crazy, you know? And he shows up here to go to seminary, and I realize he doesn't know how to drive, he doesn't know what deodorant is, and he's gonna get a master's degree. He's got a long way to go. And he became um, such a great friend of our family. We saw him learn to drive, and just and his name was John Hassan. And it's just so rewarding to show up at the airport, meet a family, and then teach them how to live in our crazy country. And um, so if you're interested in that, talk with the stewards. Uh, Chris and Jamie are right here up front. They would love to tell you more about that. Um, we're going to shift gears, and the last uh, ministry partners that we want to hear from are is joint partnership. Um, so this is my wife, Katie. Many of you know her. Um, and she's here representing Safe Families for Children, and then Julia and Jared are here representing Mercy House Ministries, um, our own ministry that we've started uh, and officially um, cranked up this last year. And so it's been a busy year for all of these ministries. But Katie, let's start out with you. Tell us about the ministry model for Safe Families for Children, um, both nationally and here in Memphis, and then where the idea for Mercy House Ministries came from. Um, so Safe Families is a, a national program, and um, we just play a small part here in Memphis, but I've been able to work with this ministry for a little over three years, and um, it's basically an alternative to traditional foster care, um, so it sounds a lot like foster care um, because we have families who are volunteers um, that come out of local churches that we partner with. Um, and they temporarily host children in their homes. Um, and then we, so the main differences between safe families and foster care, though, are that the parent maintains custody of the child or children during the hosting, and it's, um, it's voluntary. It's something they're choosing. So it's a more proactive approach before the situation gets completely out of their control. Um, so we work with families who are going through um, just a, a crisis and they need some time to get back on their feet and need a safe place for their kids to go so they can focus on the things that they need to do to create a more stable home environment for their family. Um, some of the families we work with are experiencing homelessness or unemployment, um, a health crisis, um, just things like that. So we have the host families that take the children in, and their job is just to make sure the child feels safe and as comfortable as they can feel in a stranger's home. Uh, and then we also have a group of volunteers called Family Friends, and they... Um, they just become a friend, kind of a mentor-type relationship, um, but really just a friend to the parent um, and just help encourage them toward meeting the goals that they've set for themselves. Um, and so those are the two primary ways to get involved. Um, and then the idea for Mercy House really came, it's kind of a long story, so I won't tell the whole thing, but as it relates to safe families, it just, the kids were having a great experience for the most part. They were going to this home and, um, you know, they were taken care of and it was a good experience. But the the parents, oftentimes we work with single moms, they were just still um, 
Yeah, I could just tell that there was still a struggle. When you don't have a place to, a consistent place to sleep at night, it's really hard to focus on getting a job or, you know, whatever other goals that mom would have. And so we just began to kind of dream about um, creating a space for moms like that so that at least they would know they had that one piece figured out and they could have a consistent, safe, comfortable place to lay their head at night so that they could focus on the other things that they really need to accomplish. So, yeah. Next question is for Julia. Um, Julia? You were hired as our resident assistant for Mercy House, um, but in God's providence, the ministry that you do there um, is not—it's not completely foreign to you. Um, if you can give us kind of the short version, maybe three-minute version of your—I know that's difficult—of your story and how God, um, you feel like, has prepared you for the ministry that you're part of right now. Well, um, growing up, I was raised by my grandfather mostly. Uh, my mother was a drug addict, an alcoholic, and uh, she had me when she was 17, you know, she was young. My, my father died when I was really little, so, you know, the whole family, they were just, it wasn't there. And um, I, when I was about 12, I was living in a shelter. So since a young age, I experienced of not having family, what it's like um, to be around all these children who are you know, by themselves, without a family. Um, I got saved when I was 12. There was a young group of adults who visited us every Saturday, and they just ministered to us. They played games with us, showed us movies, and just shared the gospel, kind of like in a sneaky way. Like, I never thought about it. Oh, like, they're just talking about God to us all the time. You know, I never felt like that. And um, they invited us to come to church one Sunday, and I came, and that was the time that I got saved and I just knew like God wanted me to to get better and to do better and serve people right right off the bat I just wanted to do more and more you know as a, as a young uh, kid I just thought well I can do little things like maybe don't say the bad words and be nice to the kids and maybe be more helpful to the teachers but over time I just knew that and I, I guess since I was little that ministry is part of my life and it has to be and um, there's like no other way. Um, when I was 14, I was adopted by an American family. Um, I'm from Ukraine, by the way. And um, they, they told me that my dad is a pastor. And I, I just couldn't believe it. I thought I was like the biggest blessing. I thought it was like amazing. Um, so since that young age, I was around church, around ministry. Um, I knew ins and outs. I served in the children's nursing um, all the time. I mean, that's the place you find me. If you can't find me in church, I'm going to be in the nursery. Um, and over time, God just keep working on my heart. And um, when I was, you see, when I was like around 18, 19, I was living in Newport. There was a home of women called Cornerstone. They actually deal, um, they have like the biggest prison in the state, in our Newport, for women and men in Arkansas. And um, the Cornerstone program is a ministry to women who um, maybe got saved while they're in prison and they, want, they get a the chance to leave like on probation or something while they're still being watched. And Cornerstone um, is a home that accepts them and helps them, um, provides a lot of you know, Bible studies and um, devotion, trying to help them to learn God's way and 
trying to help them get back on their feet because, you know, they don't want them to get back where, where they come from because usually, you know, they're, they've been arrested for drugs or that kind of stuff. And um, I had one of the ladies, Tiffany, she worked for my dad at church. She, she cleaned church for us. And I was, I was their uh, intern for the children's program for, for a, a little bit. And I just got to know Tiffany and um, got to become friends with her. And she talked about her children and she talked about how much she's trying to read the Bible and how much she's trying to change. And it, it just, um, you know, inspired me that there's a place that, that can help um, some women who, and she talked about, you know, how she, she was planning to move to live with her dad that is in a different state. She doesn't want to go back home because she knows she's probably going to get in the same trouble as she did before. And, um, she just really wants to change her life and get back on track. Um, when I moved here for seminary, which is in January, um, I go to a seminary uh, mid-America where Brad graduated. Um, I'm studying a Christian education. I believe God called me to be a children's minister. Um, the first month um, of January, I don't know what it was, but God was just speaking to me and saying, you know, like, you need to work with women, you need to work with women. And one of our um, part of the school is they want to, us to get involved with projects, like with missions. And I already signed up to go and, and you know, do the after school program with children, like kindergarten or something. And um, I was supposed to meet um, the people after school for my first time. And I don't know what happened, but I ended up not going. And uh, I was in process of dealing with the interviews and um, hearing from the Mercy Hill Church. And um, I just knew that I needed to be with women. That's what God wanted to be at that moment, which I didn't understand because I was like, I thought you wanted me to do children's ministry. <laughs> and he still does. But that moment, season of my life, he wanted me to do that. And, you know, I learned that you don't want to be somewhere God don't want you to be, you know, so if he tell you to, to do it, you better do it, because you're not going to have peace after all, so mm. there I am, here I am. <laughs> That's good. Julia, we're going to need you to remind us, our kids, how much of a blessing it is to have a pastor as their dad. We're going to need some help with that later, because I like that a lot. Um, Julia, so Julia serves as our resident assistant, and um, man, we can count so many ways in which God has provided financially, just so many ways. But when we, when it came down to a resident assistant, we were looking for someone kind of like a college dorm. So it needed to be somebody who makes sure people are following the rules and they're making curfew. It's hard to find a single mom or young, older to fit that criteria. And one of our one of our concerns with Mercy House was going to be with the moms that we did ministry with. Oftentimes, we felt as if they would look at us and say, you're asking me to accomplish all this stuff. You don't know what it's like to be me. And uh, we advertised with a seminary, and, and God just provided Julia. And no one can look at her and say, you don't know what it's like to be me, because she knows what it's like. I'm growing up in foster care, coming from the Ukraine, and it's such a blessing to have her. She has um, a heart and a gift for evangelism, and so we're thankful that she's there in the home. My next question is for Jared. Jared's our executive director of Mercy House Ministries Board, and um, I want to do this. Uh, I want to 
if you served with Mercy House on the board, if you helped on the house, if you've given financially, if you've had any interaction with Mercy House, I just want you to stand up for a minute. Okay, so we're missing a bunch of people today. Thank you. You guys can be seated. We're missing a bunch of people today who have shown up on Saturdays, who have given. One of the beautiful things about Mercy House is I think we can probably count about 80% of our congregation who said we're in and helping. And it's not one person or one family, but it's what God's called a whole church to come around and do. And that's one of the most beautiful things, that we can be working together on a Saturday morning and sweating together and sometimes frustrated together and then on Sunday worshiping God together. It's been beautiful. Jared, for you, what's been the most difficult part of this process and how's God used this ministry in your life so far? Yeah, um, the... I think the most difficult part of the process uh, is really, I don't know if anybody in here has ever started a ministry from scratch. So we, we kind of literally took nothing and uh, we had a house and we knew that and we knew that there was a need, but we didn't know really what, what is it going to take to go from there not being a ministry in existence to there being a ministry in existence. And so when we started down that road, uh, I think on the, in the early days, we were just were super idealistic and we thought, this is going to be easy. Like, we got a house, we're just going to stick moms in it, it's going to be beautiful, it's going to be great. And once you dive into it, you start to, to really look at the details and you're like, well, what, who's legally responsible for things and how does a lease work? And, and so really just doing the hard work on the front end of just trying to figure out and answer all these questions before they ever come up in real life. Like how can we just think through and plan for the future and, and be prepared in this ministry um, and, and so that we can see it come to fruition. Uh, that, was, that was kind of the process and really the hardest part of the process was trying to come up with those uh, come up with those answers. And then once we actually got moms in the house, uh, once we kind of had our first hosting, and we're, we're just kind of let you guys know where we're at. We've, we've had two hostings so far, and we're about to start our third one uh, coming up soon in the next few days. And so we're excited about that. I think the, the hardest part of the process since we've started ministry in the house, and this kind of doubles as the answer is, as far as kind of what God's teaching me through this process, is um, being on the board and, and being a, a part of these stories and being a part of the ministry that happens at the house. Um, it's really easy for us to have our own ideas of what success looks like in a family or in a mom's life. And so they come in and, and, and they have goals for themselves and it's different for every family. And they've, they've, uh, we only partner with uh, safe families and so their children are being hosted through safe families. And, and we have in our heads this idea of what it looks like for this mom or this family to be successful. And so it might, for us, we might think it means that they get a job and they save X amount of their money and they get their own place or their own house and then they're joyfully reunited with their children. And, and ideally, we work towards that. And that's generally the, the goal that the mom has for themselves is to, to be reunited with their family. But what we've seen is, uh, is that's not always what actually happens. And we've had to learn to just trust that we're, we're not in charge of people. We're not in charge of people's lives. We're not in charge of families. We just have to trust that ultimately God is the one who's writing their story. And we play just a really small part of that story. 
And we don't know 20, 30 years from now, as these families look back and as these moms look back at their time on Mercy House, we don't really know how God's using this time and how God's forming their hearts and what God's doing, even in the lives of their children as they're being hosted in other families. We, we really just don't know what's really happening. And so the, the, the hard part and uh, the, the part that's where God's really sanctifying, I think, everyone involved in this is just being able to trust that, uh, that if we're just faithful today to do what God's called us to do today, we have to trust everything else to the Father. We have to trust everything else to the Lord. And that, that's okay. It's okay. Sometimes we had a mom who, who moved out, and when she moved out of the house, um, she, she didn't have custody of her kids, and she moved into another shelter. And it's, it's easy to sometimes look at situations like that. And in ourselves, we can just get really discouraged and think, this mom's worse off than she was when she came in. But uh, we just have to trust that God's writing her story, that he's the author of her story, and we wouldn't be faithful with the time that we have. And uh, that's what God's been teaching me through this, is just to be faithful where we are with what we have and, uh, and just serve and love and trust that God can take care of the rest. Mm-hmm. That's good. Julia, this question's for you. It may be a little even early on to ask it in our ministry's kind of life cycle, but where have you seen God's hand at work so far in the ministry? Um, I think you can still, like every day, every interaction that I get with moms, um, I, I always see, you know, God's work, the fact that they come home on time, the fact that they're, um, or even the sad days. I had um, had an opportunity to interact and maybe share the gospel with, with some of these moms. And it doesn't, you know, maybe they did not accept it. And uh, But the seed was planted, you know. Um, I got to have oh, some conversations with them and where they could share something to me maybe that they couldn't share to anybody else. And just listen to them because sometimes, you know, that's more important than actually giving them advice. Yeah. And, you know, first mom, um, when she came, I, I bought some flowers, like, the day before she came over to just look at the house, see if she's interested in coming and staying. And um, Katie was over there with me when she brought her to look over, and um, she was just, like, so excited to see those flowers. And she was broke down tears. That was really important to her that... You know, those flowers meant um, a sign of motherhood to her. You know, to me, it was just, it was pretty flowers. I didn't know what I was doing at the moment, but God was using that. You know, and to her, it was like a sign of maybe God does want me to be here. Maybe that God does have something special for me. You know, and so, and with the mom that we do have right now, Alex, uh, I enjoy interacting with her. And we have a lot of discussions about the Bible. And, hmm. you know, she claimed that she was an atheist. And I said, well, you know, atheists don't believe in the Bible or God. And she's like, oh, really? You know, she can't call herself now because <laughs> she says that she does believe in the Bible. You know? She's far um, from, you know, the gospel. And, she, you know, I pray for her every day. But, you know, spending the nights and watching movies with them, um, mm-hmm. having a meal with them, and interacting in the kitchen, cooking with them, or even giving a ride to work or anything like that. All yeah. of those times, little each moment that God gives you an opportunity to um, serve them in a way. 
you know, um, I kind of, when, when you have somebody around you, like, if you're in church on Sunday morning, you feel like you need to act your best, you know, because you're around all the, um, you're around the pastor, the pastor's wife, and all these people who could be a deacon, or everybody's watching you. So you feel like you got to be on your best behavior. Well, that's kind of how it is in the house, but you have to do that 24 hours a day. <laughs> you know, there's no exceptions. Because, you know, yes, you want them to see your flaws, because you want, you want them to see that you're um, a human and still, and God's working on you every day. But at the same time, you want to be the best witness that you can be. You want to be the light 24 hours, you know? Yeah. You can't have a relaxed time and be like, well, I came from work. I don't have to be the light anymore. I can just sit on the couch and not think about it. But um, if they're in the house, you still have to do that because I think it's important that yeah. we do that. Because that might be the only light they see that week, you know? I love that, um, and that's really our philosophy of ministry is that the gospel infiltrates all of our life, and so um, as we think about that, you know, what does it look like to be loving all the time, even with our kids, even when we get home from work and we're tired, and uh, one of my favorite stories so far about one of the moms is uh, Katie has some interaction with the moms, and um, there was one particular mom that she invited uh, to join us for a Sunday gathering, and she said, oh, no. I am not ready to be around the church. And she's had a lot of bad experiences with different churches. And she said, um, I'm going to have pizza with Ben and Jessica and for lunch on Saturday. And we just kind of snickered and we were like, what she doesn't realize, and what you said earlier about kind of in a sneaky way, this is in kind of a sneaky way, she's not getting away from the church because Ben and Jessica are part of our church and she's having pizza with the church. And so she might not be yet at a gathering with us. She might not be a believer yet, but she's with the church and God's not allowing her to get away. So we're thankful for those stories and the, the stories that God is at work writing. Um, last, last question, Katie. How can people, um, what volunteer positions are needed with both Safe Families and Mercy House Ministries in the future? Um, how can people get involved? Well, I mentioned being a host family earlier. Um, being a host family just means that you, um, you show b- biblical hospitality to a family, to a child. Um, biblical hospitality is a love of a stranger, and so it's not, hospitality is not about breaking out your fine china and having a dinner party. It is about inviting people who, whose mess is really evident sometimes into your home and, and being engaged in that, stepping into that mess with them. Um, it might mean, you can ask Michael and Kristen, uh, it might mean waking up at 3 a.m. with a little kid's face in your face and being completely freaked out because that happened to them last night. Um, so it's not always easy. They're doing respite care this weekend. They're doing weekend. respite care this weekend for a little boy whose mom will move in the house uh, probably Wednesday or Thursday of this week. Um, and so uh, being a host family is not always easy, um, but it's very rewarding. It is a, it's a huge gift to that mom, to that parent, um, just that someone else can love their child. Um, someone else can have their back and be their cheerleader um, and be an encouragement to them. So uh, being a host family is a great way to get involved. If, if you feel like you're not in a stage of life or that's just more than you want to do right now, you can also be a family friend, and we have several of those in the room as well. 
Um, and being a family friend looks like eating pizza together and giving a car ride. And um, when I meet with a new parent that we're going to work with, I always say, what do you need to accomplish? What do you want to accomplish so that you can be back with your kids as soon as possible? And so we write those things down and we say, for this goal, what are the specific like baby steps that need to take place? And so our family friends get a copy of that. And they just, they're just a cheerleader for that. In this case, we're working with moms with the house. We work with single dads and two parent families too. But um, it is just, you know, being that, that mom's cheerleader, uh, being someone that she can call and talk to um, when things aren't going well or she needs advice or just needs a listening ear. I mean, the parents that we work with are socially isolated or they wouldn't be coming to us asking for strangers to take care of their kids. They need friends. They need real friendship and it takes time to build trust, but it's worth it. Um, and so being a family friend kind of looks like being a mentor or just being a friend, being available. Um, those are the the two biggest needs that we have. Yeah. Um, and just from my standpoint, I've worked with a lot of parents over the last three-ish years. And to be able to have this house and to be able to see, like, I mean, I just, I get the biggest kick out of it. Because when Alex says, no way, I'm not coming to church, I'm like, okay, well, joke's on you. Because you're around the church all the time and you just don't even know it. And I'm okay with that. If she never steps foot in this Room. I'm okay with that because she is being loved on. I mean, the biggest the biggest goal that we have for these families is that they come to see tangibly the love that God has for them. Many of them grew up in foster care themselves, and many of them come from very, very, very hard places and have experienced things that most of us have not, not ever experienced. And life is just beating them up. And they just need to be loved on. They need to know that, that God has not given up on them, that he, he is faithful, and that he is with them. And, um, and so our volunteers, that's another big difference between safe families and foster care is our host families don't get paid. This is a, a very volunteer-driven ministry. And um, our volunteers are the ones who really make the work possible. And um, so those are the biggest needs that we have. Yeah. And... Um, it's really fun to see it in action through Mercy House. We're able to go a little deeper with these moms because we're, we just have more people interacting with them. And so I'm excited to see how God's going to continue to use the house. As far as needs go with the house, Jared might be able to answer that better. But, I mean, we're just looking for creative ways to teach these moms about finances and nutrition and all kinds of things. So the sky's really the limit. There's uh, missional communities that keep the grass cut, um, you know, just kind of keep the house up, you know, give us some curb appeal and things like that. So there's lots of different ways to get involved, and we can be really creative with how we, how we do it. Is there anything you want to add, Jared? Any needs that... Yeah, um, Katie mentioned um, having family friends, and so that's that's a big part of, of ministry in the house, because we really want, because Katie does family friends even outside of Mercy Hill Church, even outside of Mercy House. We really want all of the moms who are staying in Mercy House, we really desire for the family friend for those moms to come from Mercy Hill Church. And so we have uh, several missional communities that are involved that way. Um, you can be a family friend even if you're not in one of those missional communities. And so that's a great 
way that you can volunteer and be a part of the ministry. Uh, the only other thing that I would uh, mention in addition to what you said, um, respite care. Uh, we do respite care uh, just like Michael and Kristen are doing respite care for a, uh, for a safe family's host family. Uh, we offer respite care for Julia. So Julia is in the house as a resident assistant, and uh, we would like for someone uh, to be at the house every single night. And so for Julia, uh, that means that uh, when she takes a vacation or if she wants to go home and visit family, any night that she's not in the house, uh, we need to provide respite care uh, for that night. And so what that looks like is, um, obviously ladies are, are filling this position because we're gonna be, uh, we ask for respite care to come in and, and just stay really just in the evening time and, and overnight. So from 9.30 p.m. till 7 a.m., someone just come and spend the night in the house. And we just wanna be sure that moms are still coming in at their curfew time that they're supposed to be in and that there's nothing too crazy going on at the house. And so um, if you're interested in volunteering through that way and being a part of the ministry, so our, our goal is to have a list uh, so that when we have a respite care need or when Julie is out of town or when she needs to be gone for a night, uh, that we have a list of people who we can just kind of call and see, hey, would you be interested in serving these nights or on these days? Uh, so that's the only thing that I would add as far as needs for volunteers. I'll just say really quickly, I have some brochures over beside the coffee table um, and then some pictures of families that we've served. If you want to see what it looks like, um, like real people that we've served, you might recognize some faces over there on that table. Um, you can also go to save-families.org if you want more information. And it really, that website breaks down a little bit more specifically what those different roles are so you can visit um, and I'll be over here after the service if you have questions. Awesome. You guys thank our panel. Y'all take your stories with you. Thank you, guys. I just want to say real specifically, um, you heard, okay, there's a need. And you heard things are going well. Um, specifically, right now, we have two... Um, family friends, and that's Tiffany and Lori, and we need more than two family friends. And so there's not just a need, there's a critical need. So if you're interested in mentoring a mom, please come and talk with Katie um, afterwards. I'm going to invite the band, if they would, to come up. And um, as they come up and as we prepare uh, to come to the Lord's table, um, you can just begin to see the way in which the gospel calls us to care for the poor. If we really understand God's grace in our lives, then we don't look at the poor and say, you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We look at the poor and we say, we are beginning to understand what it's like for you because we too were spiritually poor. Now, I can preach on this all day long. We can talk about it all day long. The only way that your mindset is really going to change is when you know someone who comes from an under-resourced family. And when you slowly take the time not to be their savior, because we're not their savior, but when you take the time to love them unconditionally and point them to Jesus, who is their savior, all of a sudden, what you will discover is that the ministry isn't really what you're doing to that individual. The ministry is about what you're receiving because you're coming to understand the gospel of Jesus in a whole, fresh, and new way.
today as we turn our hearts toward the table, I want to remind you of an old hymn from Charles Wesley. He would say, Come, sinners, to the gospel feast. I'm going to wait and let, it, let you see it on the screen. Come, sinners, to the gospel feast. Let every soul be Jesus' guest. Ye need not one be left behind, for God hath bid all humankind. God's desire is that you would know him through the work of his son, Jesus. I'm going to read you something. The classic hymn, born out of the Great Awakening, calls us to remember the invitation of the gospel. It's an anthem for the church to remember who we're called to be. A community that welcomes every soul as Jesus' guest into the most meaningful table. Our invitation to those in our city is not simply to dinner parties, but into the family of God. Into union with Christ as we welcome the poor and powerless into our community meals. And as we share the crucial nature of the elements of communion, we realize We are the sinners coming. We are the ones in need of his body and his blood. A community that secludes itself and its dinner table from the outside world will not only struggle to reach its neighbors, but will fail to see its need for the table. Today we come to this table and we come as those who are in need. We come as those who recognize that it's only by the grace of Jesus, it's only by his sacrifice on the cross that we are now connected to God and that we are forgiven. And we come to this table and we remember that as we take bread, which gives us sustenance, that Jesus' body broken for us gives us life with God. And as we come and as we tear the bread and as we dip it in the juice, we're reminded that his blood reconciles us to God. That God looks at us and he grants us righteousness, not because of any good deed of our own, but because of Jesus' work on our behalf. And so I'm going to invite you to his table to remember his gospel. He invites the poor. He invites you, come and worship Jesus at his table.